Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. From riots in the streets of Los Angeles and the siege at Ruby Ridge to the election of Bill Clinton and the late-night TV wars, 1992 was a pretty incredible year with tons of transformation, excitement, along with devastation and tragedy. There were seismic changes that continue to reverberate through our lives 30 years later. I'm Kathy Kanzora, and this is History of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. In this episode, we're looking back and counting down 10 of the most memorable stories of 1992. In the number 10 spot, Sinead O'Connor speaks the truth. Irish singer Sinead O'Connor shot to fame in 1990, following her blistering cover of the Prince song, Nothing Compares to You. But even before she topped the music charts, Sinead seemed to court controversy. In 1989, she announced her support for the Irish Republican Army before renouncing it a year later. That same year, she refused to perform in New Jersey if the Star-Spangled Banner played before her concert began. And a year later, in 1991, she refused to accept a Grammy Award for Best Alternative Album as a protest against the commercialism of the award show. But the controversy Sinead is known for best happened on October 3rd, 1992, during what would become an infamous performance on Saturday Night Live. As the musical guest on SNL, Sinead O'Connor sang an a cappella version of the Bob Marley song, War, with modified lyrics to highlight the plight of children abused by the Catholic Church. And everywhere is war Until the ignoble and unhappy regime Which holds all of us through Child abuse, yeah Child abuse, yeah At the end of the song, she deviated from her planned performance and tore up a picture of Pope John Paul II, and then looked at the camera and said, Fight the real enemy! Remember, this was nearly a decade before scandals involving the Catholic Church became front-page news. The audience at the SNL show was silent throughout her performance, but NBC reportedly heard from nearly a thousand angry callers over the next few days. Just seven people called NBC to register their support for the singer. Sinead O'Connor paid a heavy price for being ahead of her time and taking this radical stand. She became the target of scorn from the public, as well as other musicians and actors, including Madonna, who told the media, I think there's a better way to present her ideas rather than ripping up an image that means a lot to other people. Madonna incidentally copied Sinead O'Connor when she appeared on SNL three months later in January 93, and ripped up a photo of Joey Buttafuoco. If you don't remember that name, check out the very first episode of History of the 90s. Meanwhile, in 1992, the week after Sinead's protest, SNL guest Joe Pesci devoted his opening monologue to condemning O'Connor. Sounding like the wise guy he often played in movies, Pesci insisted that had he been in charge of the show, he would have given O'Connor such a smack. The Washington Times named her the face of pure hatred 
and Frank Sinatra called her one stupid broad. Two weeks after the SNL episode aired on October 16, 1992, the outrage against Sinead O'Connor continued when she performed at a Bob Dylan tribute concert in Madison Square Garden. Ladies and gentlemen, Sinead O'Connor. She took to the stage to perform I Believe in You, but boos from the crowd stopped her from singing. Sinead fought back by again singing the song War. And then Chris Christopherson, who was the master of ceremonies for the evening, went out and gave her a big hug, telling her, don't let the bastards get you down. Days after the concert, a 30-ton steamroller in front of her record label's New York office crushed an enormous pile of records, cassettes, and CDs bearing O'Connor's name. Despite the outrage, Sinead O'Connor stood by her actions and clarified that she wanted to face some very difficult truths namely the epidemic of child abuse in her native country. You see, for O'Connor, the issue was personal. As a teenager, she had spent 18 months in a place known as a Magdalene Asylum, a notorious institution for youth deemed wayward or promiscuous, where physical, sexual, and emotional abuse at the hands of clergy was common. And it turns out O'Connor was light years ahead of us all, at least on the issue of the Catholic Church. It would take decades before we would grasp the extent of abuse in the Irish Catholic Church and connected institutions. And it was much worse than we could even imagine. Last year, Sinead O'Connor released a memoir called Rememberings. In it, she says she doesn't regret her actions on SNL. In fact, Sinead said it freed her from being a pop star something she never wanted in the first place. 1992 was a big year for another female artist, but for completely different reasons. Whitney Houston was at the top of her game with a new movie and this chart-topping hit. Whitney's version of I Will Always Love You was released in early November ahead of her major film debut in The Bodyguard with Kevin Costner, also known as John Dutton, the boss man on Yellowstone. I Will Always Love You caught everyone off guard when it became an instant hit, climbing to the number one spot on the Billboard charts within two weeks, where it stayed for over three months. In all, 1992 showcased 12 number one singles, some more memorable than others. Case in point, Right Said Fred hit number one for three weeks with the inescapable song, I'm Too Sexy. And I'm too sexy for my hat. Too sexy for my hat. What you think about that? I'm a model. You know what I mean? And I do my little As for top albums, Nirvana's Nevermind knocked Michael Jackson and Dangerous out of the number one spot in January 1992. But the album that dominated for most of the year was Rope in the Wind by Garth Brooks. In the number nine spot, Hurricane Andrew tears through Florida. This is the worst I ever been in my life. As long as I live, this is the worst thing I've been in. Makes me sick. It's just the only thing I ever owned. I don't have anything. Everything's all over the place. 
Packing winds of 165 miles an hour, Hurricane Andrew slammed into Florida as a Category 5 storm on August 24, 1992, becoming one of the worst natural disasters in U.S. history. 61 people died as a result of Hurricane Andrew, which caused an estimated $27 billion in damage, which was a record until Hurricane Katrina in 2005 and then Hurricane Sandy in 2012. Hardest hit was southern Dade County below Miami. It was left literally a tangle of mangled lumber, metal, and glass. Houses were flattened, boats and planes were tossed, and trees fell. Homestead Air Force Base was shattered beyond recognition. More than 125,000 homes in Dade County were destroyed, leaving one in 10 people without a place to live. Thousands of elderly residents were reported missing by family members around the country, so teams of public health doctors and other volunteers canvassed neighborhoods looking for anyone who is trapped in the wreckage. Authorities struggled to restore basic services like electricity and water in the days following the hurricane, and people disregarded warnings to stay off the streets. Many roamed around Miami in search of ice, canned foods, gasoline, batteries, and charcoal for their grills. Finally, five days after the storm hit, the first of 6,000 Army troops and 1,000 Marines arrived on the scene. The government shipped in hundreds of thousands of servings of military field rations and built tent cities offering cots, blankets, generators, and water. President George Bush Sr. was criticized for his slow response, something his son would also be accused of 13 years later when Hurricane Katrina devastated New Orleans. When Hurricane Andrew hit 30 years ago, it was like a compact buzzsaw that ripped the roofs off thousands of South Florida homes. It was so catastrophic that it led to sweeping changes in the insurance industry, weather forecasting, and disaster response. And Floridians, shocked by acres of flattened homes, rewrote the state's building codes, making them the toughest in the nation. In the number eight spot, David Milgard is released from prison. DNA analysis was first introduced into the criminal justice system in the 1980s. But it wasn't until the 90s that we began to see a dramatic increase in the use of the technology to overturn wrongful convictions. Here in Canada, one of the most famous wrongful conviction cases involved David Milgard, who was released from prison in April 1992 after serving nearly 23 years behind bars for a Saskatchewan murder he did not commit. And it would take several more years after his release before he was definitively cleared by DNA evidence, which pointed directly to the actual killer. The story began on January 31, 1969, when David Milgard, a carefree teenage tippy, was passing through the city of Saskatoon. On that same day, a nursing assistant, Gail Miller, was sexually assaulted and stabbed to death in an alleyway. Her body was left in a snowbank. On the strength of sketchy forensics and unreliable witnesses, Milgard was convicted of murder and sentenced to life in prison. He was just 16 years old. But his mother never gave up, doggedly confronting politicians in a bid to free her son, who she adamantly stated was innocent of the crimes. In 1990, Joyce Milgard confronted Federal Justice Minister Kim Campbell as she exited a meeting. Campbell hurried past Milgard, saying, Ma'am, if you want your son to have a fair hearing, don't approach me personally. 
Joyce Milgard said the snub actually gave her son's plight a boost at the national level, which until then had been a strictly regional story. When the case was finally brought before the Supreme Court in 1992, judges ordered a new trial, but the province of Saskatchewan chose not to continue with the case. Saskatchewan Justice Minister Bob Mitchell decided to stay the charges rather than have a new trial. Mitchell said the province will not try Milgard again because it would be difficult to mount a successful prosecution 23 years after Miller died. The decision meant that Milgard was left in a state of legal limbo. He would be released from jail, but without a new trial, his previous conviction would remain on the books. It was not the acquittal or declaration of innocence that he and his family had been pushing for. Still, Milgard's mother, Joyce, was thrilled when she arrived at the prison to take her son home. It's a lifetime come true. Let's go inside and we, we don't want to wait. We want to pick up our son and take him home. On his first night out, Milgard and family went to a Winnipeg Chinese food restaurant where well-wishers sent over champagne and Milgard feasted on egg rolls and chow mein. Sadly, though, Milgard had a very hard time adjusting to life outside prison. While behind bars, he had been subjected to physical and sexual assaults, which led to several suicide attempts. And in 1980, David Milgard managed to escape for 77 days before being shot and recaptured by the RCMP. Outside of prison, he struggled with alcoholism and had several run-ins with the law, including arrests in Vancouver and Kingston. Often, these episodes happened because Milgard had become disoriented when he stopped taking lithium, a treatment for bipolar disorder. Finally, in July 1997, the cloud hanging over David Milgard's head was lifted when DNA testing proved he was not the killer of Gail Miller. The DNA found on her clothing back in 1969 belonged to convicted serial rapist Larry Fisher, who was already behind bars. He was found guilty in the Miller case and remained behind bars until his death in 2015. Milgard was eventually compensated $10 million from the federal and provincial governments. Currently, he lives in Alberta and works as a community support worker. His case became known as one of the most infamous wrongful convictions in the Canadian criminal justice system. And today, it's studied in law classes around the country. It was also immortalized in a song by the Tragically Hip, one of Canada's greatest bands. Before he died, singer Gord Downey said the song Wheat Kings from their third album, Fully Completely, is about Milgard's mother Joyce and her absolute faith in her son's innocence. Late breaking story on the CBC A nation whispers we always knew that he'd go free and you can't be fond of living in the past If you are, then there's no way that you're gonna last We kings and pretty bad. In 1993, Milgard took a trip to meet the Tragically Hip, where he shook hands with Gord Downey and stood in the crowd at a concert as the band dedicated Wheat Kings to him. Another thing Canadians celebrated in 1992 was the first World Series win by the Toronto Blue Jays. That year, they beat the Atlanta Braves four games to two, becoming the first non-American team to win the World Series. 
In Game 6 in Atlanta, the Jays' Dave Winfield doubled home two runs in the top of the 11th, and Mike Timlin picked up the final out in the bottom of the inning to secure the 1992 title. The iconic win was punctuated by outfielder Joe Carter, who started the game at first base, squeezing the final out and leaping into the air to begin the celebration. The series is also remembered for a flag fiasco. Prior to the second game of the series, the U.S. Marine Corps Color Guard flew the Canadian flag upside down during the anthem, nearly causing an international incident. Well, actually, not really. Canadians are way too polite for that. At the 1992 Super Bowl, Washington overwhelmed Buffalo's heralded quarterback Jim Kelly and running back Thurman Thomas, beating the Bills 37-24. Absolute frustration undid the Bills when Thomas couldn't find his helmet for the first two plays of the game. It was eventually found under the team bench. It was the third of four consecutive Super Bowl losing appearances for the Bills and what many thought was the Bills' curse. 30 years later, fans are still waiting for that win, and maybe they'll get it this year. In other sports in 1992, the Stanley Cup was won by the Pittsburgh Penguins, led by Mario Lemieux. They swept the Chicago Blackhawks four games to none, and the Chicago Bulls captured their second straight NBA title by beating the Portland Trailblazers four games to two. In the number seven spot, the Teflon Don goes to jail. On June 23, 1992, the swaggering, tough-talking leader of the Gambino crime family was sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole. Don Gotti earned the nickname the Teflon Don after escaping unscathed from three high-profile trials between 1985 and 1990. But the law finally caught up to him in 1992, when he was found guilty in connection with the assassination of mob boss Paul Castellano and his bodyguard outside a Manhattan steakhouse back in December 1985. The murder was believed to be a power grab by Gotti, who became the leader of the Gambino crime family after Castellano was gunned down. Between 1985 and 1990, Gotti rapidly expanded the Gambino criminal empire, and it grew into the nation's most powerful mafia family. The family was especially known for drugs, gambling, and car theft, and had links to New York City construction, labor unions, and the garment industry. Gotti, who was known for his ruthlessness and furious temper, was also known for his colorful way of dressing, which earned him a second nickname, the Dapper Dawn. And unlike other mob bosses who shunned the spotlight as much as possible, Gotti courted publicity. Despite wide publicity of his criminal activities, Gotti managed to avoid jail several times, usually through witness intimidation. But then the FBI bugged his social club and other places where mob leaders held private meetings and got enough evidence on tape to indict Gotti in the murder of Castellano. At the trial, Gotti's close colleague Sammy the Bull Gravano testified against him in exchange for a reduced sentence. In a bizarre incident after John Gotti's sentence was announced, about 800 Gotti supporters who had gathered in a park across the street from the Brooklyn courthouse stormed the building. Chanting, set Gotti free, they smashed and overturned cars and pelted police with wood ripped from barricades. Inside, federal marshals locked the doors against the angry protesters. 
The crowd then attacked cars belonging to the marshals. Many of the protesters had arrived on seven chartered buses from New Jersey, Queens, and the Bronx. They argued that the trial had been a travesty, calling it a kangaroo court. It's believed that Gotti's son, John Gotti Jr., organized the protest. The son actually took over for his dad until he too was sent to prison in 1999 and then quit the mob altogether. After that, Gotti Sr. reportedly ran the crime family from inside the prison until he died from throat cancer in 2004. Following Gotti's death, his daughter Victoria and her family starred in a reality show called Growing Up Gotti, which ran from 2004 to 2007. So my sons are in a recording studio with Gotti the rapper, and I'm a little worried. I don't want the boys pretending to be tough guys or doing some kind of potty mouth rap. She also competed on Celebrity Apprentice and made appearances on Bravo's Housewives of New Jersey and VH1's Mob Wives. Other than these reality shows, the Gambino family has mostly kept a low profile since the 1990s, and its power has also declined. They were back in the news, though, in 2019, when the family's reputed boss, Francesco Cali, was shot and killed outside his home in Staten Island. In the number six spot, another kind of war, the late night wars. You people watching, I can only tell you that it has been an honor and a privilege to come into your homes all these years and entertain you. And I hope when I find something that I want to do and I think you will like and come back that you'll be as gracious inviting me into your home as you have been. I bid you a very heartfelt good night. Johnny Carson, longtime host of The Tonight Show on NBC, said his final goodbye on May 22, 1992. Prior to his retirement, there had been wide speculation that David Letterman, the host of his own highly successful show on NBC, would step into Carson's shoes. But instead, Jay Leno got the job, setting off the late-night wars. The decision by NBC surprised everyone, including Johnny Carson, who invited Letterman onto The Tonight Show one more time before he retired. Carson asked Letterman, how pissed are you? Letterman claimed he wasn't mad at anyone, but the next year, he bolted from NBC to launch The Late Show on CBS, which put him in direct competition with Leno. Leno routinely beat Letterman in the ratings for the vast majority of the time they went head-to-head. But Letterman was always considered a critical darling and an innovator. According to a Letterman biography, one of the most meaningful signs of success was Carson's cameo appearance on The Late Show two years later. Carson, who died in January 2005, never appeared on Leno's show. While others certainly entered the network late-night fray during the 90s, including Arsenio Hall, no one could really compete with Letterman and Leno. And the main conversation was always about which of the two were on top. David Letterman and Jay Leno had actually come up together in the L.A. comedy scene in the 1970s. And when Letterman made his way to television, Leno was a frequent guest on his groundbreaking late-night show. After Leno took over as host of The Tonight Show, their friendship never really recovered. But it did appear to thaw when they appeared in a Super Bowl commercial with Oprah in 2010. This is the worst Super Bowl party ever. Now, Dave, be nice. Oh, he's just saying that because I'm here. Oh, he's just saying that because I'm here. 
In a recent appearance on Mark Maron's podcast, Letterman insisted Leno was the funniest person he knew, but their problems were the result of Leno's deep insecurity. The infamous late-night wars of the 1990s briefly resurfaced in 2010 when Conan O'Brien was given The Tonight Show, only to have it basically taken away from him a few months later. Leno came back for another four years and then permanently retired in 2014. Letterman retired the next year after a 33-year career, making him the longest-running host in late-night talk show history and the ultimate winner of the late-night wars. I should mention The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson won the Emmy for Outstanding Variety, Music, or Comedy Program in 1992, which surprisingly is the only Emmy the show won while Johnny Carson was hosting. Other Emmys in 1992 went to Murphy Brown and Northern Exposure, as well as Craig T. Nelson for his role on the sitcom Coach, and Dana Delaney for her portrayal of Nurse Colleen McMurphy on China Beach. And now, your host for the 64th Academy Awards presentation, Mr. Billy Crystal. At the 1992 Academy Awards, Billy Crystal surprised the audience when at the beginning of the show, he was rolled out on a dolly dressed as Hannibal Lecter. The serial killer Hungry for Humans was all the talk that year, thanks to the smash hit movie, The Silence of the Lambs, starring Anthony Hopkins and Jodie Foster. Both actors won Oscars for their roles, as did the movie's director, Jonathan Demme. Silence of the Lambs completed the sweep by taking home Best Picture. Other contenders that year included Disney's Beauty and the Beast, Bugsy, JFK, and The Prince of Tides. Number five, the Westry Mine Explosion. Just before 5.30 a.m. on May 9th, 1992, a blue-gray flash lit up the pre-dawn sky in the small town of Plymouth, Nova Scotia, two hours northeast of Halifax. Homes shuddered as a shockwave rumbled through the ground. But it wasn't an earthquake. It was a massive explosion far beneath the town in a coal mine. Deep underground, a sudden gush of methane gas had escaped and burst into flames. And within seconds, a huge fireball raced through the westry coal mine, stirring up coal dust that exploded in a thundering blast. There were 26 men underground at the time of the explosion. And over the next six days, a frantic search for survivors gripped the small town and the nation, with mine officials providing very little information about how things were progressing. I would have to say that we're at a critical point in the mine rescue activities with respect to working areas and the people in them. And we feel that uh, our energies and uh, time would be best served uh, with the people back at the mine. Any contact with the miners? There's been no contact with the miners. The mine, which opened just eight months before the explosion, was supposed to be a godsend for the economically depressed area of Plymouth, with promises of 15 years of steady employment. The owners of the Westry Mine promised to use the latest technology to make sure it was the safest operation ever seen in the province. The day after the explosion, the mine manager, Gerald Phillips, said Westry was as safe a mine as there is. But what he didn't say was that there were problems right from the start. Within a month of Westry's official opening in September 1991, there were three major cave-ins. Two months later, a Westry miner relayed a litany of safety violations to provincial inspectors. But the Labour Department failed to take action, and the miner was fired. 
After the explosion, rescue teams from around the province of Nova Scotia joined the search, honoring a long tradition of miners rushing to help fellow miners. The first 11 bodies were found the day after the explosion in the southwest section of the Westray coal mine amid charred rubble and twisted machinery. A team of rescuers spent the next three days trying to reach the main section, and when they did, the bodies of four more dead miners were found. The search for the remaining men was finally called off on May 15th. Officials said the mine was too unstable and there was no reasonable possibility that anyone had survived. The bodies of 11 men were never recovered. It was the worst mining disaster in Canada since 1958, when 75 men died in a series of collapses at a coal mine in Spring Hill, Nova Scotia. After the explosion, the Westry coal mine closed, throwing about 200 people out of work, and a tangle of lawsuits and investigations began. In April 93, the RCMP charged Westray's parent company, Toronto-based Cura Resources Incorporated, and two of its former managers with manslaughter and criminal negligence causing death. But the case eventually fell apart when the Crown concluded convictions were unlikely. Until a public inquiry is held, the questions about what caused the explosion that killed 26 men will remain a mystery. But what families of dead miners fear the most is that no one will ever be held accountable for the tragedy at the Westray coal mine. A public inquiry was eventually held in 1995, headed up by Nova Scotia Supreme Court Judge Peter Richard. Two years later, he released a hard-hitting report that concluded the tragedy was the result of incompetence, mismanagement, bureaucratic bungling, deceit, ruthlessness, cover-ups, apathy, expediency, and cynical indifference. The inquiry found there was little safety training at the mine, ventilation was poor, and the mine's methane detectors were often broken. The rest of the Westray mine was knocked down in 1998. It was covered and seeded to grass. The 11 remaining miners whose bodies were never recovered were entombed underground for eternity. Number four, the creation of NAFTA. Good luck to all of you now in the future. God bless you. On December 17, 1992, the leaders of Mexico, Canada, and the United States signed the North American Free Trade Agreement at separate ceremonies in their respective capitals. The groundbreaking and controversial agreement created the world's largest free trade zone by extending the 1989 Free Trade Agreement between Canada and the U.S. to include Mexico. NAFTA gradually eliminated most import taxes and other trade barriers on products and services passing between the three countries. The argument in favor of NAFTA was this. Setting up a free trade zone in North America would lead to increased trade and production and result in millions of well-paying jobs in all countries. Those against NAFTA worried that low wages in Mexico would attract U.S. and Canadian manufacturing companies to shift operations south, leading to a massive loss of jobs. U.S. presidential candidate Ross Perot described it this way. You can move your factory south of the border, pay a dollar an hour for labor, hire a young 25... That's assume you've been in business for a long time, you've got a mature workforce. Pay a dollar an hour for your labor, have no health care, that's the most expensive single element in making a car, have no environmental controls, no pollution controls, and no retirement, and you don't care about anything but making money, there will be a giant sucking sound going south. 
Environmentalists were also concerned about the effects of rapid industrialization in Mexico. The success or failure of NAFTA over the next two decades depends on who you listen to. Scholars and policymakers often disagree because they say it's not always easy to disentangle the impact of free trade from other economic, social, and political factors. But economists largely agree that NAFTA benefited North America's economies. It wasn't necessarily the magic bullet of prosperity promised by governments, but it did contribute to an explosion of trade between the three countries, as well as the integration of their economies. Of course, it also contributed to massive job losses and outsourcing in the U.S. and Canada, especially in the auto industry. For example, data shows that global auto producers built 11 new assembly plants in North America between 2009 and 2017. All but three of them were in Mexico. When U.S. President Donald Trump was elected in 2016, he promised to pull out of NAFTA if it wasn't renegotiated, calling it the worst trade deal ever made. After months of tough negotiations, NAFTA was signed by all three countries and came into effect in 2020, with a new name and some changes. Under the new United States-Mexico-Canada agreement, for a car to be exempt from tariffs, 75% of its components have to be manufactured in North America, up from 62.5%. 40 to 45% of car parts must be made by workers who earn at least $16 per hour, and U.S. farmers got more access to the Canadian dairy market, which had been a big issue for President Trump. This new agreement remains in place for 16 years. Number three, the battle for Ruby Ridge. On August 21st, 1992, a deadly firefight at a remote cabin on Ruby Ridge in northern Idaho sparked the birth of the modern militia movement that still exists to this day. U.S. Marshals went to Ruby Ridge looking for Randy Weaver, who had moved with his family to the cabin a year earlier after he was charged with selling illegal sawed-off shotguns to ATF agents. The former Green Beret and his wife were religious fundamentalists who distrusted the government and believed the end of the world was imminent. They had always planned to move to Ruby Ridge to live off the grid with their kids, but the couple decided to accelerate that plan after Weaver got into trouble with the law. On the morning of August 21st, 1992, U.S. Marshals planned to ambush Weaver and arrest him. But after the family's dog found officers hiding in the woods, a firefight broke out. Weaver's 14-year-old son Sammy was killed, along with a U.S. Marshal who was shot by Kevin Harris, a friend of Weaver's who was staying with them at the time. The Weavers retreated to their cabin and laid Sammy's body in a shed. Over the next day, hundreds of federal and local officers, now under the command of the FBI, began to arrive to join the siege. An order was issued that deadly force could be used on any adult male observed with a weapon. On the second day of the siege, an FBI sniper wounded Randy Weaver as he checked on his son's body. The same sniper then shot dead Randy's wife, Vicky as she stood behind the door of the cabin holding their infant daughter. As the siege dragged on for 11 days, media and protesters descended on the area, including neo-Nazis from the nearby Aryan Nations compound at Hayden Lake. 
Other far-right groups poured in from all over the country to stand against what they saw as the persecution of an innocent family by a tyrannical federal government. Ruby Ridge was resolved with the help of civilian negotiators, including Bo Gritz, a former Green Beret who was also a prolific conspiracy theorist and the Populist Party's presidential candidate. Weaver and Harris were charged with a host of crimes, including murder, conspiracy, and assault. An Idaho jury acquitted Harris of all charges. Weaver was convicted of failing to appear for the original firearms charge. The FBI sniper involved in the case was initially charged with voluntary manslaughter, but after a protracted legal battle, the charges were dropped. In 1995, the federal government settled a $3.1 million lawsuit brought by Randy Weaver and his three surviving daughters. Today, Randy Weaver, who is 73 years old, lives in Montana with his daughters. If you heard earlier episodes we did on the Branch Davidians and the Oklahoma City bombing, you'll know that Ruby Ridge and the siege at Waco, Texas the following year boosted an emerging narrative by some on the far right. They believed the feds were coming for the guns and property of those like Weaver who wanted no further contact with a country they saw as irredeemably corrupt. Bill Moreland from the Southern Poverty Law Center sums it up this way. He says, Ruby Ridge became a demarcation point for the rise of the modern militia movement. It put the fertilizer in their minds, which sprouted radical anti-government beliefs. Beliefs that became even more apparent during the storming of the U.S. Capitol last January 6th. In the number two spot, the verdict in the Rodney King beating trial and the L.A. riots. At 3 p.m. on April 28, 1992, a jury in Simi Valley, California, returned a verdict of not guilty for four Los Angeles police officers charged in the brutal beating of an unarmed black motorist. Despite graphic videotaped evidence, the jury concluded that the officers had not broken any laws when they clubbed and kicked Rodney King. Jurors were not convinced the video told the entire story of what happened. By 6 p.m., three hours after the verdict, fury over the acquittal in the Rodney King case spilled onto the streets of South Central Los Angeles. If you listened to the episode we did on the 92 LA riots, you may remember it wasn't just the King case that set things off. It was also the injustice after the Latasha Harlan's death, as well as years of racial and economic inequality. The epicenter after the King verdict was the intersection of Florence and Normandy. That's where hundreds of people filled with fury and disbelief over the acquittal gathered. Some threw rocks and bottles at cars that passed through the busy intersection. And in some cases, if a car stopped, mobs of young men ran out onto the road, specifically targeting white and Korean motorists. The first police officers who arrived on the scene were quickly outnumbered and ordered to pull out of the area. Police on the scene have said they thought it would be a short pullout to regroup before coming back to take control of the area. But that's not what happened. Police didn't return to the scene for three hours. And while they were gone, all hell broke loose. A growing mob of people beat and robbed unsuspecting motorists who traveled through the area. A few young men directed traffic through the intersection, allowing Black individuals to proceed unharmed, while all others became targets for a shower of stones and debris. 
At 646, 36-year-old truck driver Reginald Denny entered the intersection in his 18-wheeler, hauling 27 tons of sand from a quarry outside of Los Angeles. A news helicopter that hovered over the scene captured what happened next and broadcast it live to television viewers around the nation and beyond. So, folks, here's the situation from South Central. Drivers of automobiles and trucks that enter this area can expect to... uh, Oh, look at that. Terrible. And there's no police presence down here. They will not enter the area. As Denny slowly entered the intersection, a young man had yanked open the door of his cab, allowing others to pull the slightly built truck driver onto the street. Another man held Denny's head down with his foot while someone else kicked him in the stomach. And someone grabbed a five-pound piece of medical equipment that had been removed from the truck and hurled it at Denny's head and then hit him three times with a claw hammer. The most damaging blow was when someone hurled a slab of concrete at Danny's head, hitting him on the right temple. The whole time, not a single police officer was in sight. Eventually, Denny was rescued by four people who emerged from the crowd and drove him and his 18-wheeler to safety. Still, no police were present, and the rioting mob spread beyond Normandy and Florence. By 8 o'clock that night, complete anarchy spread across south-central L.A. and other parts of the city. Liquor stores, grocery stores, retail shops, and fast food restaurants were looted, destroyed, and torched, with at least 150 fires burning across the city. The smoke in the air was so thick that flights heading into Los Angeles airport had to be rerouted. Five hours after the verdict, the governor of California finally declared a state of emergency and called in the troops. Over the next several days, more than 1,100 Marines, 600 Army soldiers, and 6,500 National Guard troops would patrol the streets. On the third day of rioting, hundreds of reporters gathered outside the office of a Beverly Hills lawyer to hear Rodney King make a public statement about the chaos. The young man whose case was at the center of the controversy stepped into a swarm of reporters, nervous and barely audible, His voice lost at times to the blasting sounds of helicopter rotors overhead. King appealed for peace. I just want to say, you know, can we can we all get along? Can we can we get along? Um, Can we stop making it making it horrible for for the for the older people and and the and the kids? And I mean, we've got enough smog here in Los Angeles. Um, let alone to uh, d- deal with the uh, setting these fires and, and things. It's, it's just not right. From April 30th to May 4th, dusk to dawn curfews were enforced in the city and county of Los Angeles until the riots were finally extinguished. 50 people died and thousands more were injured. And thousands of buildings throughout the city were damaged or totally destroyed causing more than a billion dollars in damages. About half of the damage was sustained by Korean-owned businesses. If riots are the language of the unheard, as stated by Dr. Martin Luther King, the 1992 LA riots told the world loud and clear that something was broken and needed desperately to be fixed. And the number one story from 1992 goes to Bill Clinton, who became the 42nd president of the United States. 
You can trust us to wake up every day remembering the people we saw in the bus trips, the people we saw in the town meetings. All of them together are saying, we want our future back and I intend to help give it to you. On November 4th, 1992, Bill Clinton defeated incumbent President George H.W. Bush and broke a 12-year Republican hold on the White House. Clinton turfed Bush out of office after just one term, mainly because he had broken his celebrated campaign promise not to raise taxes and because the national economy was deep in a recession. The win by 46-year-old Clinton and the Democrats came following a grueling campaign that almost went off the rails early on because of a couple of high-profile controversies. In January 1992, scandal erupted when the star tabloid released a cover story claiming Clinton had a 12-year relationship with acquaintance Jennifer Flowers. In response, Bill Clinton and his wife Hillary appeared on 60 Minutes to present their side of the story. Clinton denied having an affair with Flowers, but admitted their marriage has had some problems in the past. I think most Americans would agree that it's very admirable that you have stayed together, that you've worked your problems out, that you seem to have reached some sort of an understanding and and an arrangement. Um, Wait a minute, wait a minute. (laughs) Wait a minute. You're, You're looking at two people who love each other. This is not an arrangement or an understanding. This is a marriage. That's a very different thing. You know, I'm not sitting here as some little woman standing by my man like Tammy Wynette. I'm sitting here because I love him and I respect him and I honor what he's been through and what we've been through together. And you know, if that's not enough for people, then heck, don't vote for him. The next month, the Clinton campaign faced a new challenge when the Wall Street Journal claimed that during the Vietnam War, Clinton manipulated the system to avoid the draft. In response, Clinton said that he did not dodge the draft and did nothing wrong. But the next week on Nightline, Ted Koppel read a letter written in 1969 by Clinton to the colonel in charge of the University of Arkansas ROTC program. In it, Clinton thanked the colonel for saving him from the draft and outlined his beliefs about the war. But the man known as the Comeback Kid managed to turn the narrative around by portraying himself as a hardworking family man. Clinton stayed focused on what he often called the forgotten middle class and the economy, which was underscored by his chief strategist, James Carville, who came up with the concise slogan, It's the economy, stupid. Bill Clinton, the third youngest president in history and the first baby boomer to be elected, also aggressively went after the younger vote. Who could forget his groundbreaking appearance on the Arsenio Hall show, where Clinton appeared in dark sunglasses playing Heartbreak Hotel on his tenor saxophone. Clinton's performance on Arsenio, along with appearances on Larry King Live and an MTV Town Hall, marked a turning point in the polls helping revitalize his campaign and tap a new cross-section of young and Black voters. But many in the political class and the press weren't impressed, calling the saxophone gig indecent, embarrassing, and undignified. Clinton was also aided by the surprisingly successful third-party campaign of Texas billionaire Ross Perot, who siphoned off a significant portion of the Republican vote from President Bush 
As an independent candidate, Perot shook the political rafters when he secured nearly 19% of the vote, the highest percentage of any third-party candidate in a U.S. presidential election in 80 years. He set the stage for a new kind of populist candidate, operating outside of the usual political machine. Perot spoke directly to voters through hokey TV infomercials like this one, called Chicken Feathers, Deep Voodoo, and the American Dream, which criticized Clinton's economic policies as governor of Arkansas. One out of five jobs in the last 12 years created in Arkansas has been created in the poultry business. Now, this is not an industry of tomorrow. This is honest work. It is hard work. The people that do it are world-class people. But if we decide to take this level of business-creating capability nationwide, we'll all be plucking chickens for a living. Despite Perot's criticism, President Clinton went on to oversee the United States' longest peacetime economic expansion. But that, of course, was overshadowed by his impeachment in 1998, a topic we plan to cover on History of the 90s in the upcoming year. So make sure you continue to join me as we look back at the best and worst of a decade that is still impacting us today. This episode was written and hosted by me, Kathy Gonzora. Our producer is Dila Velasquez, and audio production and sound design was by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s. 